0: Amen. Amen. Thank you to the team for leading us. Good morning, everyone. And uh, as you heard, we have an AGM after our service this morning. I'm a little concerned that a few of you have already asked what time we're hoping to finish. I've got a good doozy for today. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to preach for about an hour and then we'll head on through. No, I'm joking. I'm not going to be preaching for an hour. You don't need to panic. Um, but yes, it is our AGM straight to the service this morning, and I would encourage you. I would invite you. You don't simply have to be a member of the church to come and join us. Uh, we have many people who call White Rock Baptist Church home who may not be members in the strictest sense, but still serve, still part of the family, still part of where we're going. Uh, all membership means is that when we gather together, you're able to vote on those items that we vote on. Uh, But I would welcome you and invite you, come and join us. Come and grab some lunch, and then come and join us as we discover where God is leading us. Uh, As we dive into the scriptures this morning, perhaps you're visiting with us, Uh, we've been journeying through the book of Luke, and today we get into one of those passages where if I wasn't doing a systematic study through the book of Luke, I would skip. Because it's one of those where you read it and you go, huh, okay, what's going on? Uh, And so we're going to break it up into three sections when we get there and we'll go through it again. But by way of introduction, before we dive into the passage, I want you to think about a close friend. Uh, Some of you, you may have best friends, uh, somebody really close to you, and that was a no-brainer. When I said to you, think of a close friend, boom, a name came to mind, a face was there, and you can kind of visualize that person. Uh, Maybe for some others, you don't have that one person, but I'm hoping you have a good friend. Uh, Think about that good friend for a moment. I don't know this good friend of yours. Now, if I came and chatted to you and asked you to describe this good friend or or tell me about your good friend, I'm quite sure you're not going to lead off with, well, they're pretty useless. (laughs) We don't generally do that. We start off with the good characteristics if you're going to tell me about your friend, you're going to say, well, you know, they're really loyal, uh, or they're really smart, or they, they make me laugh when I'm feeling down, or they just understand me, they get me. A, uh, you know, we could just chat for hours, or maybe you'll kind of think of a story or a time when that friend was super helpful. And when I was thinking through this, I was reminded of a good friend of mine who uh, I had had an issue with vertigo, and I, had kind of, I went to a youth ministry program and i was the scheduled speaker for this huge program and i get to the ministry event and one of the young interns from that church sees me and he's this giant of a kid and he's so excited to see me he comes running over picks me up onto his shoulder and starts spinning around and he doesn't know i have vertigo and it just poof, set me off he put me on the ground i fell over and that was i was done they had no more speaker for that night but i had a good friend who lived kilometers away And I needed medication, and that guy drove halfway across Pretoria to get the medication and bring it to me. Like, that's a helpful friend right there. I'm not going to tell you about that friend's useless traits. Not at all. In fact, I'm going to tell you such things about that friend that you're going to think of him more highly than you probably should. That's how you know it's a good friend. So how would you describe a friend? Now, with that in mind, let's think about Jesus. If you're going to describe Jesus to someone, maybe somebody who uh, has no real understanding, kind of knows the name, knows there's this historical figure, but doesn't really know who Jesus is or was, how would you describe Jesus to a friend? I'm always fascinated by those people on the street kind of interviews about Jesus. And people ask, well, who was Jesus. Uh, You know, and they're kind of like, well, I think he was kind of this wise teacher. Uh, I think he was this gentle, meek person. For some people, Jesus is nothing more than a little baby on a Christmas card. You know, if you've ever watched and Nights when they say grace and they dear eight pounds, six ounce newborn baby Jesus, that's, no, I don't suggest you go watch that movie, but you know, that's the view that some people have of Jesus. Others might say he was this incredible philosopher, he was a brilliant teacher, he was clearly wise. There might be others who would go, well, uh, yeah, there was this man, Jesus, uh, but there's a lot of legend and he he was kind of misunderstood. Maybe some would say, well, Jesus was a man of love. Well, let me ask you, if Jesus was simply those things, wise, loving, teacher, Would Jesus have been crucified? Would he really have been crucified for being a wise teacher? Would he really have been crucified for telling people to just love each other? There's got to be something more to it. Why was Jesus crucified? I was reading a a thing by Scott McKnight, the author and, and speaker. And Scott McKnight says, yes, Jesus was a wise sage and a deeply religious man. And his teachings were undoubtedly more socially revolutionary than many evangelicals imagine. Each of these portraits says something truthful about Jesus. At a bare minimum, they need to be combined to a fuller presentation. But my fundamental disagreement with each of those statements is that such a Jesus would never have been crucified, would never have drawn the fire that he did, would never have commanded the following that he did, And would never have created a movement that still shakes the world. A Jesus who went around saying wise and witty things would never have been threatening enough to have been crucified during Passover when he was surrounded by hundreds who liked him. So what is Scott McKnight getting at? What's he asking? What's he saying there? Well, quite simple. Why was Jesus crucified? He has to have been crucified for far more than just his message. Or maybe there's elements of his message we don't fully understand, we don't fully get. And I think that's part of what we come into to this morning's passage. That sometimes Jesus says some incredibly critical things to his audience. And sometimes Jesus says some things that we kind of get defensive at. Or we look at and we go, "This, this breaks my idea of Jesus being gentle and meek and mild and caring and compassionate and loving. He's being pretty harsh here. He's saying some things that kind of get me going. And that's indeed. We need to have a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. We need to understand the picture of who he was. So if I go back to that question, how would you describe Jesus to someone who doesn't know? Well, I would start by saying, well, let's look through the Gospels. Let's have a look at who Jesus was. Let's have a look at what he said in entirety. Let's have a look at how he lived while he was here on earth. How do the Gospel writers describe God in the flesh? How do they describe this human who who was wisdom personified, who was love incarnate, but at the same time challenged the authority structures, challenge the preconceived ideas. I might be surprised when I read through that to realize there's more to Jesus than what I understand. There's more to Jesus than maybe how I've summarized him. And when I read through the Gospels, I may occasionally get to some passages where I see a side of Jesus that, well, that's challenging. Jesus got angry with people. Jesus confronted people. Even the woman caught in adultery. I've had some interesting conversations with people around that passage of scripture. Where Jesus it has this woman brought to him who's been caught in the act of adultery. She's shamed publicly and the, the authorities bring her to Jesus because they want to trap him. And the commandments say she needs to be stoned. She needs to be executed for her sin. Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus kind of sits there for a moment, scribbles in the sand. I'd love to know what he scribbled. Man, I would. And eventually he kind of looks up and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Of course, the crowd soon realized, well, we're all with sin. None of us can do that. And the crowd disappears. And Jesus looks up and there's no crowd. And Jesus says to this lady, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? And she goes, well, they've gone. And Jesus responds by saying, well then, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I accuse you. And for many people, that's where it stops. But that's not where it stops. Jesus then says to this woman, now go and sin no more. Leave that life of sin. Repent from that sin. Sometimes Jesus challenges us. And we need to engage with this side of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether on paper, on your phone or device, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 49 onwards. And like I said, I'm going to break it into three sections as we go through. And as you turn there, like all good Baptist passages of Scripture, there are three elements in this passage. Three elements that will continue next week again. So if you're visiting with us today, that's my veiled attempt at saying you actually need to be here next week as well. This is a two-part sermon. Part one, part two. If you're visiting from afar, I'll make it easy for you and we'll put it online and you can watch it straight after. The three elements which we'll get to. Jesus is calling on his audience to take note of something and then to respond in a certain way. The three elements of it is Jesus is pointing out this is a time when divisions will be made. A time when people need to open their eyes and see what's going on. And then a time to respond in the correct manner. Luke chapter 12 verse 49. I have come to bring fire on earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraints I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What on earth? You know what? Christmas is like peace on earth. Uh, This is the kind of Jesus that I really like. So why does Jesus now stop and go, I've come to bring fire on earth? When we read through the gospels, there are a few times where Jesus gives an I have come kind of statement. And when he speaks about I have come, generally those statements summarize his ministry. So what does fire summarize? This is where you and I are at a disadvantage. We're not first-century Jews living in the time of Jesus. While we think we know the Old Testament, we don't have the prophets memorized. We don't have the Torah at our, in our minds straight away. How would a first-century Jew hear the words of Jesus? You see, the Old Testament uses the illustration of fire in relation to God. And whenever the Old Testament speaks about fire in relation to God, it's for two reasons. It symbolizes the presence of God, and it symbolizes the judgment of God. It is the fire that burns away whatever doesn't belong there. It is the fire that removes those bits. And so Jesus says, I've come, and my ministry includes judgment. My ministry includes me calling to account. So yes, Jesus is indeed loving, Indeed compassionate, indeed caring. But he is not outside of judgment. We cannot say that Jesus would never judge. Because Jesus himself says, I will do just that. And not only will I come and bring judgment on the earth and judge all peoples of the earth. I'm going to come and bring division in homes where families Parents, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, in-laws. It doesn't matter. Every dynamic within the family, there will be division. Now, of course, again, we might look at that and go, we're kind of, this is a bit confusing. But in a culture, in a context... Where there is social pressure and there's a societal expectation of what you believe and what you practice. Jesus rightfully points out, if you choose to follow me, if you choose to accept me as Lord and Savior and Messiah in your life, you will be shunned and ostracized. We see that now in parts of North Africa and Middle East, when people turn to Christ in fact, sadly, in many parts of the world, not only are they shunned, but they are, their lives are threatened. And Jesus says, if you follow me, be prepared. The gospel might force you to trust me and believe me, and the gospel will force you to make a choice. But that choice will have consequence. Because I've come to bring division. You know, when I read a passage like this, I am truly grateful for a family who love and worship the Lord. I'm truly grateful for parents and in-laws who who faithfully serve and spend time with God and who who have a faith rooted in Jesus Christ. But by the same token, it breaks my heart when I journey with families, particularly at the end of life stage, where there are members of the family who do not share that same faith. And there's this bitterness and this hurt and this pain and this turmoil in the midst of that. And I read a passage like this and I'm, in a way encouraged and reminded, this is what Jesus said. My friends, I don't know where your family stand in light of faith in Christ, but for those of you whose families do not believe what you believe and who do not share your faith, Jesus says, this is normal. This is what will happen. I haven't come so that everyone just gathers together and sings kumbaya. No. I am divisive. Because to choose me is to reject and to reject me is to choose else. Therefore, choose me. And so Jesus now goes on. In verse 54, he's just dropped this bombshell. And then in verse 54, he said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Can I just say as an aside, just right there, I, I don't know how to engage other than to say I love the fact that Jesus just shouts out at his crowd, hypocrites. It's not something I do too often from the stage, because I know how it would end. But Jesus is unafraid. He says to the crowd, you know, life on earth is temporary, Family division is going to come. It's, it's only a brief moment. There's an eternity out there. And either we will spend eternity in the presence of God, in the new heaven and new earth, with Christ, when Christ establishes it, when he comes again. And if we cast our minds back to last week, the, ver- the immediately preceding passage of scripture, Jesus says, I'm coming back. And either we will spend eternity with Christ in that place, or we will not. And the consequence is too hellish to even contemplate. So let me ask you, how well can you read the weather? Friday morning, uh, I was up and I opened the curtain and I caught sight of this incredible sunrise out towards the east. And uh, it was all reds and pinks and just beautiful just before the sun's coming up there, off the horizon. And you know the first thing that popped into my mind? Red in the morn, shepherds warn. Red at night, shepherds delight. Now, I know I'm a pastor and sometimes pastors get called shepherds. If you put me in charge of sheep, I would have no clue. So why do I know about red at night, shepherds delight, red in the morn, shepherds warn? Because somebody's taught me that. And I know that red in the morn means there's some cloud cover. And there could be some wet, r- wet wane, wind and rain coming. Red at night, again, means there's possibly some cloud cover. And it might keep a little bit warmer. I mean, that's about it. However, when I used to surf, I could lie in my bed with my head just next to the window. And I could reach up and just creak the curtain just a smidge and I could see leaves in the trees, and depending on how and if they were moving, I could tell you what wind was blowing. And because I could tell you what wind was blowing and basically how strong that wind was, I could tell you which surf spot would be firing, which surf spot you need to get to. And I would phone my friends, not even out of my pajamas. Hey, it's firing, let's get going. And we prided ourselves in that. We could read the weather. We knew where to go surfing. Jesus is saying, you hypocrites. In fact, I think that's a tactful word of saying, you morons. (laughs) You can read the weather, but you cannot read the signs of the times? You cannot read this present time from a spiritual, eternal perspective? There's a fascinating verse in the Old Testament book, the First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And in chapter 12 of First Chronicles, it's this list of all the soldiers, the men and their clans and the tribes that are joining David's army. And they're joining the ranks. They want to come and fight alongside David. And then randomly, right in the middle, verse 32, about the the tribe from Issachar, men from Issachar. It says, from Issachar... Men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. This is what Jesus is challenging his audience on. If there were men who understood the times and who knew what Israel should do, well, why not now? Why are there not people who now can understand the times and who know what to do? This is what Jesus is challenging us with. In fact, he's criticizing with. And we need to pause. And we need to consider the world around us. And indeed, there is tremendous beauty. There is tremendous glory. There are things which we give thanks to God and we praise God for. But if we're honest and we have a look around at the world, there is darkness. There is heartache. There is pain. There are wars, there are famines, there are floods, there are fires, there's confusion, there's depression, desperation, disease. There are all these things. So how should we respond to that? In light of eternity, in light of the spiritual nature of things, how do we respond to the world around us? I think there are one of two ways we can respond. One is we create a nice, perfect little Christian ghetto bubble. A group of people who keep to themselves, who don't offend and don't upset anyone. Where we stay comfortable, where we're happy, and no one keeps changing the music. My, my belief, though, is a spiritual ghetto like that, for it to truly be perfect, has to be limited to one. Either we become a Christian ghetto, or, this is the second option, We, brothers and sisters in Christ, continue the movement that Christ started. That those early disciples died for. We become a movement of Christ followers who will do whatever it takes to reach a world that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when I look at White Rock Baptist Church, I see a church that wrestles between those because we're human after all and there are days where we want to retreat there are days we want to get back into that nice little bubble but at the same time I see a church that also is on the verge of reaching her full redemptive potential I see a church in the future bursting at the seams with people who want to know and hear about Jesus Christ I see a church of disciples who are not happy keeping the status quo. Instead, I see a church of Christ followers who understand the times and who know what should be done and who therefore respond. I see a church who long to hear the words of Jesus, as we've read before, when they stand before Christ in judgment. They want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. Now enter into rest and into your master's happiness. Yes, indeed, I see a church that seeks to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ, worshiping God and growing in faith to impact the world. Will you be a part of a church like that? Then understand the times. Jesus continues in verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last Penny. Now again, this is is kind of a random little chunk of verses in the middle there. I say in the middle there because this passage doesn't end where the chapter ends. We go into chapter 13 next week. So why is there this random little passage about being reconciled to one another? Is that the focus of this verse or this, this little portion? No, I don't believe it is. That's not to say we shouldn't learn from it because Scripture is filled with that theme of being reconciled with brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because Satan loves division. Satan will do everything in his power to divide a body of brothers and sisters in Christ. So you're going to walk out to your car today and you're going to get frustrated because somebody parked too close to you. And you're going to think negative thoughts. There's Satan sowing some seeds. You're going to have a conversation with somebody, misunderstand what they said because they said it poorly because they weren't thinking. And there's a seed of division. Satan will do everything in his power. We can give in to that, we can become a tool of Satan. Or we can understand the need for unity and the need for reconciliation and we can fight for it at every single cost, at every opportunity. Brian, how do you really feel about that? (laughs) But you see, that's not actually the point there. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is just as you understand between yourself and others, just as you understand that if you've done wrong and and you owe, they can take you to the magistrate. You know that. And they could, by the way. If, If I had wronged you, Maybe I reversed out of my parking lot and bumped your fender and we didn't have a nice neat ICBC or anything like that. You could come after me and say, Brian, you owe me to repair this. And if I didn't want to and said thanks but no thanks, you could take me off to the magistrate. And the magistrate could go, Brian, you owe. Because you haven't paid and because it seems like you're not going to, well, we're throwing you into prison or forced labor until you pay back what is owed. Now, I know that. So if you come to me and say, hey, Brian, we've got a date with the magistrate. And on route, I decide, hey, maybe we should discuss terms. And we do that and we reconcile. And Jesus goes, you understand that. Therefore, understand the spiritual relationship and the spiritual contact or context in terms of God and be reconciled to God. Now, I know you're going, Brian, where do you get that in that passage? I don't in that immediate because it's picked up immediately in chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 1 and following, Jesus dives straight into repent. Repent. Turn from sin in order to be reconciled with God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, just as you know with brothers and sisters how to be reconciled, so you need to be reconciled with God. As you understand the time. As you understand the time in which you live. So what? What do I do with this? What is Jesus saying to us this morning? White Rock Baptist Church, I believe as I read through a passage like this, Jesus is saying to you and I, friends... Brothers and sisters, take note of the world around you. Take note of a world in desperate need of grace. Take note of a world in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rather than retreat <clears throat> excuse me, and ignore and avoid, engage. Engage with that world. And as you engage with that world, bear in mind you engage with God. Be reconciled to God so that you can reconcile with others in order to proclaim the gospel. And as I said, we're going to pick it up again next week. Let's pray together. Jesus, when we read your word and we come to a portion like this, we're introduced to a, a side of you, a facet that we're not always comfortable with and we're not always familiar with. Oh, Jesus, it's, it's so much easier. It's, it's more rewarding almost. It's more joyful to focus on your love, your compassion, your mercy, your goodness. And we know those are true. But Jesus, now and again, you remind us. That at the same time you called us to account. You spoke critically. You spoke directly to your disciples and to your followers and to your audience. And so therefore you speak directly to us. And sometimes we need to hear those harsh words. Because they're done out of love. They're done to wake us up out of our sleep. They're done to call us to attention. And so, Jesus, this morning again, I pray for each one of us, myself included, open our eyes that we might see you more clearly. Open our ears that we might hear you more clearly. Open our hearts that we might receive your word. And then help us, Holy Spirit, to respond. Help us, Jesus, to see the world around us as you see it. And as we see it, God, let us not become afraid. Let us not become so self-absorbed or protectionist that we just close and batten down the hatches. But rather, God, let us see a world that needs the grace of Jesus Christ, that needs to engage with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to teach a world that their hope, their only hope, is in Jesus Christ. And we respond in repentance. We respond in turning to you. And we respond by receiving and acknowledging you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. God, indeed, may the ministry of this church, of White Rock Baptist Church, and indeed the churches of the peninsula, May our ministry bear fruit that will last in your kingdom. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.